0: If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Haggai as we continue our our quick tour of this wonderful little book found on page 791 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you're not using a Pew Bible, the best way to find Haggai, you feel free to use the table of contents, but if you find the book of Matthew, if you go towards the front of the Bible, three books, you'll see Malachi and then Zechariah, and eventually you'll come to this little two-chapter book named Haggai. And so I'm excited to spend my time with you this morning considering the Word of God from this prophecy given over 2,500 years ago. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the Word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Our Father, we delight in you today. We long to know you more today because of the work of Christ in our lives, He has redeemed us. He has bought us out of our bondage to sin and self and claimed us as a people for Himself through His blood on the cross and has brought us here today that we might hear from You, our Father. And so Your people, You're chosen from this world of darkness have gathered as Hamilton Baptist Church eager to hear from the Lord of hosts. Eager to hear from the commander of the heavenly armies. Eager to hear from the sovereign creator and ruler of all things. And so we humbly place ourselves at your feet, Father, and ask that you would teach us and that You, by Your grace, would encourage us and conform us to the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. In Charles Bunyan's classic, The Pilgrim's Progress, our heroes, Christian and hopeful, wander off the trail and come upon doubting Castle. Now, Doubting Castle is not a nice place to be. Therein lives the giant despair who immediately captures Christian and hopeful and casts them into, as Bunyan put it, a very dark dungeon where other pilgrims had perished. And on occasion, the giant despair comes to visit his captives and comes to beat them. And lay upon them in their dungeon until the point where Christian and hopeful, full of depression and misery, are ready to give up on life. Then Christian finally remembers that in his bosom pocket, in the pocket closest to his heart, lies a key, the key of promise. He takes the key from his chest pocket and puts it in the iron gate that holds him captive. And lo and behold, the key of promise unlocks the gates of Doubting Castle and frees both him and Hopeful from the giant despair. Bunyan's point in his allegory some 500 years ago was that when pilgrims are locked up in despair or captured by doubt, there is one escape and one escape only. It is to remember the promises of God and be released from your dungeon of despair. So I wonder, perhaps today you might come here with discouragement on your heart. I wonder if there are some here this morning that find despair in their soul, discouraged perhaps that your efforts seem to be bearing so little fruit in your life, that there's little progress, little growth in your ministry or your own life. I want you to know that God has a word for you today. In fact, God has a good word for all of us today, and it would have been a good word for the people in Haggai's day. Now, if you remember, if you were here last week, we started this Three week series through the prophet of Haggai calling, called it renewing the remnant. That, that God had taken people out of captivity in Babylon or Persia at this time, and they had traveled 900 miles on this pilgrimage, and they returned to the promised land, and they did so for one purpose, and it was to rebuild the temple. And they wanted to come back and re-erect the temple that was destroyed some 50 years earlier by the nation of Babylon, and, and, and yet they got sidetracked, didn't they, with their own affairs, and begin to focus upon their own priorities, and God asked them through the prophet Haggai, why are you paneling your own homes when my home Lies in ruins. He comes and says, I, I didn't bring you out of captivity. I didn't redeem you from your enslavement and, and take you 900 miles simply so that you can neglect me and neglect my kingdom and think I'm simply a God to follow you around and put fancy molding upon your house. Give yourself to my mission, he says. Change your priorities, he calls them. And a, a miracle happened. <laughs> they listened. Right? I mean, how often does a prophet actually see the fruit of his prophetic ministry and they obey? They said, you're right. What have we been doing for 15 years? We've been looking at our own lives and neglecting God. And they, they got to work. And it was a miracle. Remember, was it verse 12 or so in chapter 1? It says, God stirred up their spirit so that they might love Him and the work that He has called them to do. And and they got back to work and built His temple And and so we pick up the story here in chapter 2, less than one month after they started resuming this rebuilding program. In fact, 24 days to be exact. Their excitement and enthusiasm, unfortunately, has already waned. It was short-lived. The work has become derailed. They become overwhelmed at their inadequacies uh, to accomplish the tasks that lay before them. They were, they were overwhelmed by their lack of resources and abilities to actually build this temple. They were, if you will, locked in a dungeon of doubt, bewailed by despair and discouragement. And it is to this discouraged people that Haggai now comes a second time. To challenge their perspectives. To help them to to remember who God is and what He has promised them. But before He lays, uh, lays out the promises of God, before He, if you will, takes out the key of promise, He reviews their discouragement. He acknowledges what they're facing. So consider, first of all, this morning, their discouragement. Verse 1 tells us in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Haggai, once again, will give us the exact date of his sermon. He'll preach four sermons in this book, dating each one of them. This one occurred on October 17th, year 520 B.C. Now, of course, that means absolutely nothing to you, doesn't it? But it meant something to them. It was the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacle. In fact, it was a very important day, not just for that, but for another reason. You see, the Feast of the Tabernacles, when the people of God would gather together, it's one of the three times of the year they would gather together in Jerusalem to remember what God had done and and to celebrate His past faithfulness. And and in this time, they were remembering how God delivered them from Egypt and and protected them and guided them through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It's why it's called the Feast of the Tabernacles, because it reminds them of the 40 years that they lived in tabernacles or tents. They would pitch their tents there in the streets of Jerusalem to remember how God Had provided for them. And so all of Israel now, uh, the remnant has gathered in Jerusalem. But it's an important date for a second reason. You see, the last day of the Feast of the Tabernacles is the anniversary of the dedication of Solomon's temple. 400 years earlier. It was on the very anniversary when they had, people of God had gathered together four centuries prior to, to see the temple which Solomon had built. And so these people now are gathering amongst the charred ruins of the temple with memories of Solomon's great temple in their minds. And rather than being encouraged, they begin to grow full of despair. This time, it should have been a time of celebration, but there was no celebration on their heart. There was rather discouragement. There was, there was this comparing the, the temple, greatness of Solomon's temple with the, with the temple in which they were building. And they didn't compare. And they were discouraged by their work. In fact, this is not the first time this has happened. When they first got back to the promised land, it was 16 years earlier, remember we, we said they laid the foundation. We talked about that last week of the temple. They got there and, and they laid the foundation. There was this great celebration. The book of Ezra tells us in chapter three that the priests were adorned with their clerical garments and the Levites were blown their trumpets and the people were gathered together and they were singing responsively and praising God for His steadfast love. They were shouting so loud, the Bible tells us, that the neighboring nations could hear their celebration. They were so filled with delight at the the work that had begun to build this temple. But Ezra doesn't stop there at the celebration. He goes on, you know, and he says just uh, in the next verse, but many of the older people who had seen the former temple wept bitterly when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid. You see, they're weeping because they remember the the first temple, right? And now they stare at this paltry foundation and they realize what they're building is like a, a shack out back compared to the glory of what Solomon had built. They remember the temple of their youth and they say, well, it w- will never be like that again. And, and now, well, that was 16 years earlier, now they come back and they start to build upon the foundation and just 24 days into it, a, a month, not even a month has passed. And, and as they considered the anniversary of the dedication of Solomon's temple and then the work that they're trying to, to build, the despair has returned. And and you know what happened? what follows despair every time? inactivity. And they begin to get derailed. And the work stops. And knowing their despair and perhaps fighting it himself, this elderly prophet begins to address them a second time. He does so with a series of questions. Note verse 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory. You see, he knows what's discouraging them. And so he stands before the gathered people of Israel and says, just show of hands. Who remembers Solomon's temple? Which which one of you are, are 66 years or older? And you were here and you worshipped at Solomon's temple? The temple that stood in this very spot. The temple that was in its day one of the wonders of the world. The, the apple of God's eye. Who who remembers the temple that glistened with precious stones and that was overlaid with gold? Who, who remembers the temple whose inner room, the Holy of Holies, was, was painted with gold? So much gold that it would cost four billion dollars today in today's money just to paint the inner room of the temple. Or, Solomon, uh, Haggai says, who remembers the stories of four centuries ago when that temple was dedicated by King Solomon on this very day and the ark was paraded through the streets of Jerusalem and, and the sacrifices were so many we couldn't even count them. And in the middle of it all, the glory of God came and filled this house, knocking the entire nation down to their knees in awe of the majesty of God. Who remembers that? Do you remember its former glory? And they remembered. Whether they had lived at that time or they had grown up on the stories, they they remembered. And now they have grown hopeless as they compare the structure in which they are building to the greatness of the structure that one once existed. In fact, you read on in verse 3, is this not what Haggai is? asking them how do you see it now is it not as nothing in your eyes there's nothing in your sight and you could kind of hear them answering yeah it is like nothing that's what we're thinking what we're building is just a heap of rubble there's no gold there's no ark. there's no glory of god i mean what is the use why are we even doing this? And so we got fields to tend to and our affairs to to attend to. Well why are we here? We can't do this. We're wasting our time. Let's face it. The glory days are gone. You know, we we lived in Babylon for 5 decades without the temple. We could live here without it too. I don't know if you can relate to that kind of discouragement. In fact, I would suggest that if you've lived long enough all of us can ex can relate in some way to that can't we experience some something like that in our lives right are are there not times in which you have compared the current situation in your life or maybe in your ministry or in your church with the the good old days long gone and i praise the lord by the way that i think he is blessing hamilton baptist church i praise the lord that god is growing this church and has been growing it for at least the past three years, I praise the Lord that, that people are devoted to God and, and that this seems to be a, a time of reaping for us. And I hope and pray it will continue to be so. But let me tell you, I've been pastoring for nearly two decades now, and I know there are good times and there are lean times. And so do not be surprised when the lean times come and you and I might then be tempted to look back and say, Oh, do you remember when it was 2016? Do you remember the good old days when the church was full? Right? And we begin to look at the past... And we wonder why God's not blessing now. Or we don't look in the church, but we look in our own lives and we feel like we work and we work and we, we work and there's so little fruit to show from it. And, and listen, I've been ministering for these many years or I'm devoting myself to prayer or I'm trying to raise my, my children or I'm trying to grow in my own relationship with God. And we, I, I pour myself into it week after week and month after month. And I, and, and I stand back and wonder where's the fruit where's the growth and then you're tempted to look back on a better time or maybe you just look across the street and you begin to compare your temple with someone else's temple and next to their temple your temple looks pitiful and you're tempted to look at someone else's life and you think they're so joyful and happy and problem-free and what's wrong with my life where's the fruit and you grow discouraged He said, what's the point? Why am I working so hard when there's not the blessing? And you think, I'm just going to quit. I just want to watch TV. Why labor like this? And and, and sometimes this despair turns into bitterness. Ezra will tell us that the older generation who remember the temple and its greater glory went from discouragement to bitter. And that bitterness began to turn into criticism to those who are actually excited about the work. And soon those who were enthusiastic about the work, they grew discouraged too. In other words, the attitude that it's not working, the attitude that it's not as good as it used to be, is contagious. And it spreads within the community. Despair spreads within the people of God. I would like to encourage you this morning, Hamilton Baptist Church, to beware of these attitudes. It is, of course, not wrong to look back We're going to, in just a moment, look back, are we not, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We're going to remember what Christ did for us 2,000 years ago. It is good to remember God's past faithfulness. But if all we do is look back, if all we do is think God was a God of yesterday, we will become useless to Him. When church becomes like a high school reunion and we just gather together and think, wow, those were the days, right? If if I could just go back to, to high school... By the way, I hated high school. I don't ever want to go back. It was a terrible, terrible time for me, right? Um, right. But this is what: if all we're doing is thinking about, "Wow, wasn't it good back then?" and we stop having our eyes on what God is doing now and what God will do with us in the future, we as a people are in trouble. The Apostle Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He continues and says, let those who are mature think this way. God is not simply a God of the past. He is a God of today. And He is a God of tomorrow. And I'll tell you, when despair comes in your life or in our church's life and discouragement strikes, we need to consider our God. We need to take our eyes off our problems and consider the God we worship, the God to whom we belong to, and consider the promises in which He has given us, which is exactly what the prophet does for this people. So consider with me, secondly, how God deals with their discouragement. He tells them that they ought not to be discouraged because God is with you. Don't be discouraged, Hamilton Baptist Church. God is with you. Verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. This is not the first time God has counseled the faint-hearted to be strong. He did so through Moses. As he exhorted Israel before they are crossing into the promised land, Moses told the people, Be strong and courageous. He did so with Joshua. As he looked at the enemies to which he had to lead the people of God to conquer, God appeared to him and said, Be strong and courageous. And here now God announces to a discouraged and fainthearted people that they are to be strong. And He does not do so once. You hear the echo there in verse 4? Be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua. Be strong, all you people. Well, why should they be strong? Read on in verse 4. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. We should not be discouraged because God is with us. And therefore, we should get to work, God says. Work, do the labor on which I have set before you in your life and in your family's life and your ministry life because I am with you. Now, by the way, notice how contrary this, this exhortation is to the world's encouragements. Of course, the, cur- the world will tell us to work, right? The, the world will tell us, like God is here, to be strong. But the world will motivate us much different. The world will say, be strong and work because I know you could do it. Be strong and work because you're special. Right? Be strong and work because you can set whatever you you could do whatever you set your mind on. This is the world's advice. God does not come to them and say, Be strong because I believe in you. No, he says, Be strong because I am with you. Right? Their hope is not in their own resources or in their own strength. Your hope is not in your own resources or your own strength, but it is in the fact that God is with you. God is with us. Of course you can't build this temple. Whoever said you could. But I'm with you, God says. I'm here to help. I'm here to empower. So get back to work. You see, they forgot God. They were working for God, but somehow forgot about Him. And, they, and all they had is the, the assessment of the, the, the difficulty of the task before them. They had the wrong perspective. They were looking at their circumstances. They were, like you and I are so often, they were practical atheists. They were evangelical deists. They, they believe in God. They believe all the truth about God, but are very reluctant to believe that God will actually work in any powerful way in their own lives. Right. In fact, you know, they're thinking about Solomon's temple and the dedication. They should have remembered David's parting words to Solomon. When David, King David's dying, he gathers his son Solomon to him and he gives him one exhortation. And the exhortation is to build the temple. This is dad's parting words to his son who will take the throne. And this is what David says to Solomon. See if this sounds familiar. Be strong and of good courage. Work, fear not. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until the house of the Lord is finished. That's almost the exact words of Haggai. Here, as God sends them. In other words, the same God that was with Solomon and helped Solomon build his temple is now with you. And so take courage, work, give yourself to the ministry, which God has given you. God has come and he is with you. In fact, every time it seems that God exhorts his faint hearted people to be strong and courageous, he motivates them. He tells them why they ought to be strong and courageous. So when Moses told the people of Israel to be strong and courageous, he said, for the Lord, your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. After Joshua is told to be strong, the Bible says, for the Lord, your God will be with you wherever you go. And now the remnant is told to be strong and they're told to be strong. Because God says, I am with you. And I want to tell you that this morning, church. I want to tell you individually. And I want to tell you corporately. That, that no matter what you face. No matter the, the magnitude of the work before you. Or the, the lack of fruitfulness in the labor that you see in your life. You need to understand something deep into, in your heart. That God is with you. God says through his word to you this morning, I am with you. I'm with you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to walk away from you. And if you and I feel weak like they did in Moses' day, or we feel afraid and, and, and the task seems impossible like they did in Joshua's day, or if we are like Haggai's day and think the work is fruitless, at that moment you and I need to learn to take our eyes off the circumstances in which we live and place our eyes upon the glory and power of God and see that He is with you. He'll never forsake you. I tell you, God is alive. You understand that? God is alive and He's not just far off in distance. He is right here, right now. He is with you through every trial you will face. I am with you. In fact, I would suggest to you that the the dignity of the work corresponds with the dignity of the individuals giving themselves to the work. Does that make sense? Right? The, the, the value of the job increases with the dignity of those who are willing to give themselves to it. If so, and if that's true, and God is with you in your work, then, then nothing you do is, for His sake, is trivial. Right? If He's actually willing to work with you in it, John Piper put it this way, when God is working at your side, nothing is trivial. Right? Nothing, nothing you do is trivial at all because God is with you. In fact, you want to know how he's with you? Look in verse 5. He says, I'm with you. Verse 4 declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I'm with you according to the covenant. According to the covenant I made with you at Sinai, I'm with you like I was with you when I redeemed you out of the most powerful nation in the world by my outstretched arm. You didn't contribute anything to it. I defeated all of Pharaoh's army with no help from you. I'm I'm with you like that. You want to think about the past? God says, okay, let's think about the past. Let's think about what I did for you. Remember when there was no temple at all. Remember when all you were were slaves and I bore you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That same God who did that is with you today. Haggai says. That same God who did that way back in Egypt is with you, Hamilton Baptist Church. Right now, He is with you. His Spirit remains in your midst. Just like He did with the wandering people of Israel, right? The, the, the Spirit of God right in the middle of their camp as a flaming cloud, a, a, a glorious cloud. That God is with you. He remains with you right now. And so fear not. There's nothing to fear. Get, get to work, God says. There's work to be done. And I am with you. And I wonder when Haggai comes to this and, and tells them this, I wonder what, how they responded to this. I wonder, I wonder if they were filled with joy and uh, uh, devotion and thanksgiving. I wonder if it penetrated their hearts. I wonder if the promise uh, that God's presence with them just came and took root in, in their souls. I think there's times we need to hear this. Maybe some of you are desperate need to hear this right now deep into your heart as you face discouragement or fruitless ministry. You need to hear God say to you, I am with you. I am with you. I was praying for you this week. I was praying for me this week that these words would be so meaningful to us that we would hear God through His Word say, I am with you, and that would stir you up, that would excite you, that would give strength for you to serve Him. I am with you would light a fire of heart, a fire in your heart of praise to your Savior. Perhaps when other people have abandoned you, I am with you would motivate you to try new and amazing exploits for God, that He would help you check your perspective. He would help you take your eyes off the challenges and difficulties in which you face and realize that God is here in your presence may God do this work in our lives and I wonder if for you who are here and do not know this God and are not yet submitted to Christ I wonder what what you place your hope in I, I wonder where how you fight despair and and discouragement I would suggest to you that the strength or the worthiness of your faith depends upon the object of your faith. Are you in yourself, your family, or your job? I trust in the God Almighty. I would suggest that that was a far greater place to place your faith. Well, God not only promises His presence in their labor, you think that should be enough, but He offers a second reason why they should overcome the discouragement in their hearts consider that we ought not to be discouraged for God is working through you. So God is not only with you, but He is working through you. Note verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. they're looking at their work and thinking it looks so insignificant. It looks so meaningless. It looks paltry. It looks fruitless. And God through the prophet comes to them and he says, if you only knew what I plan to do through your labor. This, This temple seems like nothing to you. I understand that. But let me just give you a glimpse. Let me give you a glimpse of what I plan to do through it. What my plans are for the temple. In fact, when I'm done... With this work that you're doing, Solomon's temple will pale in comparison to the glory I plan to bring to it. Uh, God is saying, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to take your work, and I'm going to fill it with glory. You need to hear that, Christian. That God is going to take your labor for the honor of Christ, and He's going to, to make it 10,000 times more significant than you ever imagined. Therefore, take heart and get to work, because you and I are building more than we realize. God is going to work through you. And He talks about He's going to do it through this shaking. You see that in verse 6? For thus says the Lord of hosts... Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Verse 7, and I will shake all the nations. God is going to take a hold of this cosmos and He is going to begin to shake it. And He's going to shift this, the nations and, and the earth and the sea and the dry land and the heavens. God, and you know who's going to do this? You've heard it over and over again, haven't you? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts will do it. In fact, six times in these four verses, He said the Bible says, declares the Lord of hosts, this is my plan. This is what I will do. I will show everyone who actually rules this world. And it is not the presidents and premiers and the candidates on the stage. It is God Almighty. And I plan to shake this land. And, and when he, when he does, in fact, what, it, what is this shaking referred to? Some people think it refers to the immediate shaking that's going to take place within decades of this prophecy. When, when King Darius, the, the the great king of the mightiest nation on earth, Persia, will in great hubris decide to invade this little kingdom called Greece. And there he, Darius will be soundly defeated in the battle of Marathon. In the year 490, it's so a battle that even the Greeks still celebrate. And that was the downfall of the Persian Empire and the uprise of the nation of Greece, where Alexander the Great would soon come to power. And so some say, well, there's, there's an immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. And like so much Old Testament prophecy, there is, there's an immediate fulfillment, but it always, almost always points to the greater and the more full, perfect fulfillment found in Christ. And in fact, this passage, Haggai 2.6, is the only verse in the book of Haggai that is quoted in the New Testament. It's found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And you, you might want to turn there. It's a, a very interesting verse. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 26. He quotes Haggai 2.6. And, and he, he's showing us the book of Hebrews, is helping us understand what God means when he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. And and he explains that Haggai is not talking about Persia's defeat by Greece. But ultimately he's talking about this great climatic judgment at the end of times which God will come and shake all of the cosmos. But the book of Hebrews does explains this day of the Lord in an interesting way. And I'm going to show you this in a moment. What the author of Hebrews is doing is he's explaining when God comes and shakes all of creation, he's going to do it in such a way that everything that is accomplished in this world not for his glory, is going to be blown away. And the only things that will remain, the only things that will survive this great sifting, are the things done for God Himself. So Hebrews 12, verse 26. The Bible says, at that time His voice shook the earth. Now He's referring there to God shaking the earth at Mount Sinai. So He says, remember, God shook the earth when He brought the people to Mount Sinai, but now He has promised... Here's the quote from Haggai. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So what does that mean? He shook shook the earth and Sinai, but he's going to do it again. Verse 27, the phrase, yet once more, quoting from Haggai, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. You see, what he's saying is that the great shaking is coming and Everything that man has accomplished for his own glory and for his own renown, every temple they've built, every degree they've earned, every accomplishment and wealth in which they have accumulated, all will be blown away. And the only things that will remain are those things which are done for God's glory and for God's fame and for God's kingdom. So Haggai is coming and telling these people, and I think God is telling us today, that don't just look at the immediate fruitfulness of your work. Just don't stand back and look at the temple in which you're building and think, well, is it impressive or not? He, don't, don't just evaluate it by its, if you will, by its external adornment. Do, don't you realize, Haggai says, that even the smallest acts done for the glory of God and for his fame will survive the great judgment of God. Your work, Christians, done for the honor of God will carry, g- carry on for eternity. I think it's extraordinary. So when you go home this afternoon and you honor God by loving your family by cooking them a meal, or tomorrow you go to work and, and you know the Bible says well, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God, and you sit down at your desk and you have a report to fill out or a paper to write, and you say, God, I want to do this for, I'm going to fill this report out for your glory. Right? I'm thankful for this job, I'm thankful for this class, and I want to honor you through this work. And, You come next Sunday and you teach the two and three year olds Sunday school class, or you get on your knees Wednesday morning and you pray for our missionaries, or you one day perhaps stand up and preach a sermon. I tell you, whatever you do for the glory of God will survive throughout the judgment and into eternity. Christian, you build more than you realize. The work that you are doing, not even giving a cup of cold water, which costs you absolutely nothing, will be neglected by God. And so check your perspective. Stop looking just at the the immediate fruitfulness of your work and realize that if you do it for the honor and the glory of God, it will carry on forever. Forever. You're building something massive and beautiful, and you need to have that perspective to continue on. God is going to shake this world, and your work and my work, when done for the glory of God, will survive even on into eternity and forever and ever. In fact, Haggai tells us the results of this shaking. We're going to have to pick up speed for a little bit. Hold on for a moment. There are three Results of this shaking which God will do. The first of all, it says the desired of all nations will come. Look in verse 7. I will shake the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So there's a d- difficulty in this translation here. My version says the treasures of all the nations. If you have the NIV, maybe, the King James Version, it says the desired of all the nations. So what does it mean? What's, what is God going to bring in? How is this fulfilled? Well, many people think, well, it's the treasures of all the nations. And I think it probably immediately refers to that, that literal silver and gold is going to come into this temple because God is shaking them. And they look at this meager building they're building, and they look at their lack of resources, and God says, listen, guys, I plan to pick up the nations by their feet and shake them over the temple and empty their pockets into this temple building. And it happened. You read the book of Ezra, and for some reason Persia, who just let them go back there, decided to begin to fund this temple to a pagan god because God was releasing the money. Or you read on, and you know about Herod the Great, who took all the wealth of Rome and began to adorn this temple so that it was the glory of the east. In fact, God can do this. Look at verse 8. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. I own it all. It's all mine. You see, it didn't matter whether the temple had gold or not. God didn't care. It doesn't matter to God. He owns all the gold. It's all mine. Whether it's in the temple or somewhere else, it's still mine. What He wanted was the joyful lives devoted to His fame. And the same is true today. The the majesty of God's temple, which is as uh, Steve taught us this morning, even in his prayer from Ephesians 2, the church, the temple always pointed to the church, The, the, it's not, the majesty of the church is not determined by the building. It's not determined by the budget. It's determined by the lives that are given to further His glory and His honor. And if we need resources to do that, you know who will provide those? The one who owns everything. And He will make sure that we have what we need to do what He has called us to do. Right And so, yes, I, I think this there is a fulfillment that treasures are poured into this temple. But I don't think that exhausts this prophecy. I like the reading, the desire of all nations. You see, throughout the history of the church, Haggai 2, 7 has always been interpreted messianic. Messianically, I don't know if that's a word, but that's how it's been interpreted. Right? It's always been understood as a reference to Christ. That one day when God shakes the heavens and the earth, people from all nations on that day will desire the messiah he'll come the desire to the messiah will come to the temple Right, That he will come and all the nations will love him. People from every tongue and tribe and language and people. And he's doing that right now. And so do not be discouraged. Be strong and work. For Christ says, I am returning and I have bought the nations and they will long for me. The second result of this shaking is that the temple will be filled with greater glory. He says that in verse 7 and again in verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts right so in other words this house is going to become so majestic it's going to it's going to make solomon's temple look like my my girl's dollhouse upstairs right it's going to pale in comparison i'm going to fill it with great glory how how does he do this is he talking about the golden roof that herod the great put on the top of the temple maybe maybe that's part of it but but remember the bible not only tells us that the church is the temple but it tells us that christ is the temple Remember, in Christ, in John chapter 2, he came to this very temple and he says, listen, you destroy this and in three days I will build it back up. And John tells us he was referring to the temple of his body, right? And Christ says, I'm... I am the temple and I am—I have so much more glory than this silly building that Rome built or that you built. It is far exceeds even the glory that Solomon built. We once used to meet with God in a temple. Now we meet with him through Jesus Christ. He's the temple of greater glory, isn't he? And one day you and I will step into eternity and it will be clear to us all for Revelation 21 says, I saw no temple in the city, right? It's a new Jerusalem. Where's the temple? John wants to know. I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord Almighty and the lamb, right? That's the glory in which we are headed to. And the third result of this shaking at the very end of verse nine, and in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this is a reference to physical peace in the city of Jerusalem. It has yet to be fulfilled. I don't think that's what he's referring to. I think he's referring to in this place, in Christ, in the Messiah, you will have peace. In Jesus, you will have peace with God. When they were living for themselves, they had no peace. When they were paneling their homes, they had no peace. All they had was exhaustion and frustration, wondering what life was about. God says, if you come to me through Christ, you will understand peace and joy and purpose and fulfillment because God made us. He knows how we work. We don't know how to live. We don't know how how we're supposed to operate. God says, you come back to me and you begin to live for me, you will understand the peace and purpose that your life is supposed to have. Listen, I'm, I'm 41 years old. I lived about half my life apart from Christ and the other half with Christ. And let me tell you, there is no greater blessing than knowing God through Jesus Christ. Listen, I've tried it the other way. Some of you have. And it was terrible right? That was high school for me, right? Uh, It was bad, bad time. I know Christ now. I know God now, not because I'm a good person. Trust me. God was gracious enough to show me what my life looks like when I don't know Him. And it is ugly, it is messy, and it is evil and wicked. And and when I'm on my own, I don't do well. But now that I'm with God, not because I'm a good person, but because God is gracious to me, I'll tell you, life cannot get any better than this. I mean, it can't Get better, you understand what I'm saying. God has given that peace into our heart. You know that peace, Christian. Do you know that peace, Christian? Yes, Yes, He has placed peace in your life. The prophet Haggai says, I will give peace. That's what He wants to give you. And some of you are just living life and you don't know it. And He says, It's here right now. Everything you're looking for is here. This very moment on February 7th, 2016. You could reach out and take it now. You can have it. Forgiveness of sin. Adoption into the family of God. Made righteous through Christ. Eternity with God forever. You know, Jesus said, Destroy this temple in three days. I will build it up again. They did that. They destroyed that temple. They, they they arrested him in the secret of night and took him to a sham trial and they, they, they beat him and they spit upon him and they mocked him and they stripped him naked and paraded him through the streets and then they pinned him to a cross where they murdered the son of God and at that same time as bad as that was the whole wrath of God was being poured out upon Jesus for my sin and for the sin of all who would believe in him and just as he said he died but three days later he built that temple no! no! No one takes my life from me, he said. I lay it down on my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have the power to raise it up again. And three days later, physically, bodily, historically, he conquered death once and for all. Our undisputed, undefeated enemy, Jesus, knocked it aside and walked out of that tomb. And all who bow their knee to King Jesus will live forever with him. That's all you have to do is get on your knee in your heart and say, I believe, I surrender. Why would you not do that? It is, I'm telling you, if you walk out of here not knowing Jesus, that is the dumbest decision you'll ever make. It just makes no sense. He offers you everything. He offers it all right now. All you would have to do is pray with him. Our Father, I, I, will You not call the lost to Yourself? Will You not redeem those who are living in their sin? And, and they believe the lie. They think sin offers more peace. It doesn't. Will You not bring them to Yourself? Will You not cause them to be born again that they might bend their knee to King Jesus and trust Him? And Father, will You remind the rest of us That we, dear Lord, that we're headed somewhere. I mean, there's actually direction in history. We're going someplace to complete restoration. That's where we're moving. Will you help all of us remember that you have invited us to contribute towards the restoration of all creation that we are invited to build your kingdom in our lives and lives of our family, lives of our church and lives of our community, even to the farthest corners of this world. You said, I want you to come and to work and to labor. And that when we do, whether it's simple and small, we are investing in eternity. That every single one of us is building far more than we imagine. And one day, we'll walk through eternity and you will show us what it is we have accomplished through your work because you are with us. And we will think, I had no idea. What more encouragement do we need to be strong and courageous and productive for you? Help us overcome discouragement and despair. By your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.